and commemorate the most important birth of any ever, Jesus of Nazareth. We are told in the Word of God that the promised Savior of the world will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, that he would be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1, that he would be preceded by Elijah, Malachi 4.5 and 6, that he would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15-19, that he would be from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12.3, the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, that he would be greater than David, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah, and that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and Daniel 7, 14, that he would be a will. Sacrifice, Genesis 22, 1 through 18. That he would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10. That he would be the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. And that he would bear our sins and suffer in our place. And that he would not remain dead, Isaiah 52, 10, 53, 12. Do you believe this? And if you do, are you delusional for believing things? Because Frederick said that Christianity fosters a kind of slave morality which suppresses the desires which are contained in the human will. The intellectual arguments against Christianity include that suppositions that it's a faith of violence, corruption, superstition, polytheism, homophobia, bigotry, pontification, against women's rights, and even sectarianism. We are told that what we believe is delusional. But are we? Are we delusional for believing the unbelievable? Is this book reliable, authentic, what it claims to be the very word of God, the essence of God, and the only source to know God? Or perhaps maybe we just misunderstood. Maybe the message of the Bible has just been lost in translation. Because seriously, if being a Christian, if being born of God is so great, then with the suffering in this Because if you look at the life of a person who says that they believe, and those that don't believe, there's not much of They both can love, and they both can be loved. They both can attain to wealth. They both can do, humanly speaking, both good and bad things. They both get old. They both suffer. And they both die not delusional sitting here this morning instead of sitting home in your PJs around a tree best life now 
Our chapter from today, chapter 46 of Genesis, answers this question for it. Because for us, because in it is that is supposed to be our hope. And by going through this chapter, it's my hope to once again redirect your mind and heart to the reality of our most blessed hope which is your salvation. Because this is the heart of the Lord for you as well. So buckle up and hang on. Our account from today begins and ends with this man, Israel. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, and he said, God, your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, myself will also bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. God had made a covenant promise with a man and a people. That specific man was Abram, and then through him, the people that would be called Israel or governed by God. And when God called Abraham, he lived north of Canaan. And it was there that God first spoke to Abram, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. And Abraham said to, or Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in verses 6-7 through seven of chapter 12, And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, by the oak of Mount, or Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, and Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To proceed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. This was the land that Jacob had lived most of his life in, the land that he had come back to after the 20 years of self-exile from it because of his sin against his father Isaac and his brother Esau. This was the promised land. And yet the land of Egypt always seemed to keep popping back up on the radar for the people of God. It was in that first chapter, in the telling of the calling of Abram, that the Lord brought about a famine in the land. And Abram left the promised land for Egypt, where he got himself in trouble with the of the land by lying about his wife. And then after the intervention of the Lord, Abram then took Sarah, Lot, and all his goods and headed back up north, where he finally obeyed the Lord, separated from his family by sending Lot away. And it was then that the Lord appeared to him again. Verses 14 through 17 of chapter 13. And Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Only, there was this problem. Because Abraham had no kids. Sarah, his wife, was barren. 
And this is an important thing to remember because she wasn't barren by accident. It wasn't just one of those things. This was the will of God for her and for Abraham at that time. You may be, wait, are you saying that God's making promises to Abram that are impossible? That he's promising things to Abraham that are completely out of the realm of possibility? That he's setting Abram up? Yes. Yes. And no. Because in the next chapter, chapter 15, God reiterates the promises to Abram. And since Abram was by this time catching on that Sarai wasn't pregnant, although she should have been, he puts two to two together and he came up with the correct answer. That if Sarah wasn't getting pregnant, then the promises of God that he would be a multi that that was impossible. And he had to be thinking, well, God doesn't lie. And he wouldn't promise me something possible. Maybe I just misunderstood God. Maybe I just misunderstood the, the promise that he gave me. Maybe his promises just got lost in translation. God was not the same as he was. When Abraham was God, he may have looked the same as Abraham, but Abraham knew that he wasn't the same. Abraham didn't speak his language too good. You know, especially when people translate from one language to another, sometimes. The meaning of words just don't go across cultures that well. As an example, sign Belgrade Hotel elevator instructions on how to use the elevator. It says in English, to the cabin, if the cabin should enter more persons, each one should press a number of the wishing floor. Driving is then going alphabetically national order. Or booklet friends on the road it says when passenger on foot heave in sight two to the horn but if still tickles your passage then him with vigor lost translation this is not, this must be what's happening between God and Abraham Abraham just wasn't understanding what God was meaning. Or he's taking something literally that God spiritually, which then brought about chapter 15. And after the word, after these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham, for I am told to you. The reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have not given me seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This will be your heir. But the one who will come each brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, and number the stars you are able to. Shall your be? And in that way, he counted it to him as righteousness. One six. Nope. What God had said, he meant. 
There was nothing lost in translation. And when Abraham grasped this truth, it was then that he believed. Then that he had faith. And it was then that it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is how we also and all the children of God are made righteous in the unbelievable. But, but what unfounded? See, just delusional. Something that was impossible, even though he had no reason to do so. You know, there is a clinical diagnosis for this type of mental illness. It's called delusional disorder. People believing all kinds of strange things. Was this the case for Abram? Or what about you who say that you believe in a God that you have never seen, never heard, and can't prove exist? The question that I was the belief of Abraham, the one that he had, that God says was why he was counted as righteous, was his belief deluded in his heart? There are people in our society today that believe that they're kittens. Delusional. There are men that believe that they are women. Delusional. There are people who believe the world is flat, that there are that there is such a thing as Bigfoot, even that Whataburger is as good as In and Out. Delusion, delusion, delusion. No. Abraham had every reason to believe God. Everything that he said. He had demonstrated performance to base with the fact that he didn't have to rely on the testimony of his father concerning the Lord destroying all and preserving aid on a ship. He taught himself, builder of the ark. Still alive, got the call to the Calvinians. Oh. Demonstrated performance to back up the. You have... Do you know what they are? Are the promises of what God has promised you? Are those promises, the ones that you hold on to, are they health, wealth, ease of life? Is the benefit of knowing God, of having faith in Him? Because if it is, if these are the promises of God, then the promises of the Bible are either false or they've just been lost in translation. And this is why we need to know what promised. And what promised is singular. We have been promised reconciliation. Genesis 3.15, We'll put empty between you and the woman, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. For a child born to us, and a son will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Faithful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. And now the promise to Abram and to his seed, 
And it doesn't say to his seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, and that is Christ, Galatians 3.16. And we're told that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised the dead, that for with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses for this not be shame Romans ten, nine through eleven. Are you delusional for believing in these things? But just like with the Father of faith, God has granted to you demonstrated performance as well. You have the word of God that has stood the test of time. You have 2,000 years of demonstrated performance of God building his church. And you, like Abraham, have the most convincing reason to believe. Because God has spoken to you. If you come to Christ, you have obeyed the command to confess, repent, and believe. Then he has spoken to you. And he has changed heart, changed your affections, changed your varying being. You, like Abram, like Bartimaeus, that and you have every reason to God, as did Jacob. But for all intent and purposes, it seems like the promises of God for Jacob, that they weren't being kept. It hadn't always been this way for Jacob. He had once been a contender. He had, had a, once had his own personal relationship with the Lord. He had been visited by the Lord on a couple of occasions, and there was this one time that he had gone one-to-one -one with the Lord in a wrestling match, which brought about that limp that he had. That faithful night that he had wrestled with, spoken face-to-face -face with God. He had been scared that night. And rightfully so, because he had just left his uncle Laban. 20 years of his life gone, paying seven years for each one of his wives, and then six years to gain the flocks and the herds that he had. And as he stood there that night, he knew the blessings and the covenant that God had made with his grandfather Abram. And even that blessing of the land and the people. And that had been passed to his father. And it had been passed to him. Or had it? He had to have been wondering that. Because he did have the birthright and the blessing, but he had bought the birthright from his brother, starving, and he had stolen the blessing by tricking his father into giving it to him. So on that fateful night when he waited for his brother to come with this 400 man, perhaps the thing that he had been counting on all along, the protection of the Lord, perhaps delusion he had been holding on to what he thought was the promises of the lord for all these years he remembered that dream that he had before he left the, the land of Canaan back in genesis 28 he was leaving beersheba and he slept that night putting his head or uh, a rock under his head and he had a dream, and behold, a ladder stood on the earth with its top touching heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed 
And to your seed will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you all of your seed, of all the families on the earth, shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised to you. He could go back to that spot where that dream had happened because he had placed a memorial stone there. He had made an altar there. But as he laid there that night, he had to think, was that dream really, a, was that really from God or was it just a dream? I mean, after all, he'd had other dreams after that. We all do. Maybe that dream just This had to be going through his head as he was preparing to face the loss of all of his family, all of his possessions, when he heard that his brother Esau was coming towards him with 400 men. And that was the night that he lay by himself after doing all that he could to protect himself and his family. That was the night that God showed up. This time, not in a dream, but face to face. And that was the night that God wrestled with Jacob. And what did Jacob get out of it? A crippled hip. Before that night, he had been strong. He had been agile. At the very least, he had his health. But after that night, he would never be the same again. After that night, he had to be completely reliant on the Lord. And God had proven to be with him. By the manner in which Esau received him, embracing him, forgiving him, to have a relationship with him. The fact that he was now in his homeland, the land promised Abraham, the land that he can now believe had been promised to him by God. This is when the love of his life, Rebecca, went into labor with his last son, Benjamin, and died in childbirth. Rebecca, his favorite, gone. All he had left of her were the two sons by her. And if anything happened to either one of them, he wouldn't know what he was going to do. And then the unthinkable happened. God not only took his favorite wife, but then took his favorite son as well. The rest of the boys, they came back with the coat of Joseph, bloodied, ripped to shreds. Joseph, his beloved, his trusted son, was gone. And this is when it seemed that the Lord had just sidetracked Jacob, put him out to pasture, no longer was happy with him. And so Jacob clung to Benjamin. And the years just rolled by. Not just a few, but 20. And it was then, at the end of those years of the loss and the suffering and the toil, in the midst of the worst of droughts and famines, his sons who had been sent to Egypt to buy grain with his last son from Rebekah, who he had already resigned himself, would be lost, as was Joseph. It was then that they returned from Egypt. And they all returned. And not just with grain that they went after, but they weren't walking anymore. They came riding in wagons with a pack train of mules loaded with gifts for Jacob from the vice regent of Egypt who had revealed to his sons that he was none other than 
Joseph. Joseph. His favorite son was alive. He would see him again. And it was after this event that we are told for the first time in a long time that Jacob offered sacrifices to God. And it was then that the Lord spoke to him once again, which brings, about, brings us to verse 5 from our chapter today. Then Jacob arose from, rose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their possessions, which they had accumulated in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with them, his sons and his grandsons with them, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. And then verses 8 through 27 of this chapter are given us as proof that what God had told Abram was not lost in translation. God had promised to make great nation from him and here now through his grandson the promise was being fulfilled verse 27 ends by saying that all the family of israel were 70 in number in two generations god had taken a single man abram and through him and his prodigy they now numbered 70 and this was just counting this family not the family of Ishmael as well. But I want us to really stop and think this chapter over. Because if we understand the promises of the Lord and the blessings of being of the Lord, we need to actually stop and think about what this chapter is telling us. First, let's be real. Let's summarize the events that they've happened up to this point. So the brothers had gone to Egypt. Twice. And twice they had been treated badly by that man, the vice regent. Twice. And then he reveals to them that he's their long lost brother, Joseph, the brother that they had done dirt to. And then, and then he makes nice with them, gives them some swag, tells them, head to Canaan, bring your wives and your children back to Egypt. And he tells them, you guys need to do this because, as he said, the famine is still going to be five more years in the making. And then he promised, I'm going to take care of you. Whatever that meant. In their minds, at some level, there had to be fear and trepidation on their part. Was this just some kind of a, a grand scheme on his part to get them to willingly bring their families to him? To have them drop their guards? Perhaps them get them to that place where their hearts were joyful and expectant just so he could crush them as they had done to him so long ago? Well, it definitely would seem that that's what they thought. Because the thing that Joseph emphasized to them four times when he revealed to them who he was, the thing that he commanded that they tell his father was seemingly lost in translation. They didn't tell his father the most important part of what Joseph said. It seems that that was lost in translation with them. It seems that even though Joseph four consecutive times emphasized that it was the hand of God that had brought him to Egypt, that it was the hand of God that had done all that had happened, they didn't get that part of what he was saying. 
And even after many years of him caring and, his, and having his loving oversight over his brothers, after 20 years or more, when their father dies, they still have it in their hearts that Joseph was after them. We read in Genesis 50, verses 15 and 18, then Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil that we dealt against him? Think about this. This is 40 years now. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father commanded before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they dealt evil against you. So now, please forgive the transgressions of the slaves of, your, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They broke his heart. Not so much because they didn't know him, but they broke his heart because they didn't seem to know the Lord that well at all. Which is why after having his heart broken by their accusations, his reaction is once again to redirect their attention from man back to God. Verses 19 through 21 of Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order that to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. So now do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spoke to their heart. And all this will happen 20 years from now. But this day, this is moving day. The day when they pack up all that they have known and move to their future life in Egypt, which brings about verses, verse 28 of chapter 46. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came to Goshen to live, to land in the land of Goshen. And as they got into Egypt, making their way close to where Joseph is, Joseph heads out to meet them. Verses 29 and 30. And Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. And then Israel said to Joseph, Now I can die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. These last verses are given to us in such a way that we are meant to picture this scene in our heads. We are meant to actually see it. Joseph going out in his chariot, the very essence of what an Egyptian would look like and be like, this stood in stark contrast to his father and his brothers. They wore robes. He wore a short kilt. They were bearded, had a full head of hair. He would have been clean-shaven. Joseph was outwardly an Egyptian. And from the very beginning, it was important to Joseph that they, his family, remain Hebrew and not assimilate into the Egyptian life. He, Joseph, desired that his family remain as they were and not be conformed to the land in which they were moving. He tells them in verse 31, I will go up to Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. 
And the men are shepherds, and they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their, lo- their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And it will be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Then you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth and until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And the reason for this is because Joseph knew the promises that had been made to his great-grandfather Abraham. And those promises had not been lost in translation. The promises made to his grandfather and even to his father, they were a people and a land. Not this land, but this people most certainly. But why then this land? Why were they being moved to Egypt by the Lord? And again, this is important for us to understand the benefits of being of the Lord, what that is. The question as to why the Lord took his chosen people from his chosen land and into Egypt can be answered by the vision of the Lord given to his great-grandfather Abram long ago, as told to us in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. There, when speaking about the not yet as the already, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. This is what's happening. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation to whom they are enslaved, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Think about this. Jacob and his sons would have known that their trip south, that this was the first part of those verses, they willingly went, knowing what would come next, that they were heading into exile into slavery, into torture, into mistreatment for a long time. We know, and they knew, what would happen to them in Egypt. That their families would be enslaved for 400 years. That they would be finally set free. And when they left, they would be leaving with great possessions. And this would all happen because back up in Canaan, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. Every one of these people were real people, just like you. Every one of them had hopes and dreams, just like you. And every one of them were regenerate, had Christ living in them, just like you. All of them, from Jacob to Joseph to the generations between them and Moses, 400 years, real people, the chosen people of God. And to them, The promises that had been made to Abraham was theirs. 
and they lived as slaves. Delusional that their God was the true and living God to those that were their captors. But they knew that the promise of the Lord to Abraham was not lost in translation. And we, we can look back and see historically how all that has been promised to that single childless man came to pass. That man did become the father of many nations. And to the chosen people, the land that was promised to them was given them after they spent 400 years in exile in Egypt. And all of this is given to us to demonstrate to us that what has been promised to us has not been lost in translation either. And that all too often we have forgotten what that promise is. Jesus said to those that would come after him, that looked to him for their salvation, he made promises to them and to us, such as Luke 4, 18 and 19, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Or John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Matthew 19.29, and everyone who has has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farm for my namesake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. And Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour out into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And we are all well aware of that Jeremiah 29, 11 verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And for many, this is where they end up feeling like something has been lost in translation. Because my life in Christ doesn't feel like the abundant life. I have not had the abundant life shaken down, poured out over me. I have not received a hundred times more than my family members who don't know Christ. In fact, it seems like they, they, those that don't know Christ, they have a better life than I do. They have an easier life than I do. They have better stuff than I have. I think something's been lost in translation because it sure seems my life is a calamity, not something that's glorious and abundant. So what gives? What gives is understanding what is actually promised in each of those promises that have been made to you by the Lord. Take, for example, that Jeremiah 29 verse. Most people that have that as their life's verse, posted in their house, taped to the refrigerator, they don't know the context that verse is placed in. They are actually delusional about what it means, and its meaning is lost in translation for them. Here's the context of Jeremiah 29:11. The children of Israel have been set free from Egypt. They've plundered the Egyptians as they were going out. They have conquered and destroyed the Amorites as commanded by the Lord. The nation was truly a nation. They had their own king. 
And they had forsaken God many times over. For many years. And now he has punished them for their sin by sending the Babylonians to slaughter their armies, murder and rape as they desired. And yes, God did this to his chosen people. And then he sends his remnant into exile. And once there, false prophets arose among them again, and even still telling them, don't worry, help is on the way. Get ready to move. You're not going to have to stay here. God is coming to set us free. He's going to let us go back to our old life of selfish indulgence and idol worship. And this is the context in which Jeremiah then sends that letter to them. And it says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and daughters and give them to your daughters, give to your daughters husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the peace of that city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst or your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams which you dream. It's important. For they prophesy a lie, not in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return to you to this place. Those are verses 5 through 10 of Jeremiah. And in case you went to government school, verse 11 follows verse 10. This is the future and the hope that God has for these people. His elect. And in verses 12 through 14, he continues telling them what that future looks like, what our promise truly is. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will return your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where you have been banished. And I will cause you to return to the place from where I sent you into exile. And there, in that one verse, that first verse is the one thing that the promise of the blessing of the Lord is. You will call upon me. You will pray to me. And I will listen. How important is that in your life? Do you count that as a biggest blessing in your life? that God has ever given to you? Do you not see how much has been lost in translation? How delusional we have become in our understanding of what it is, the benefit of being saved. What right do you have to speak to the Holy Spirit? God.
this is the cake. Everything else in life is just the icing on that cake. And this, this was the future and the hope that he had for his chosen people, who he sent into exile. And for the rest of those people, the physical nation of Israel, he had a future for them as well. He said to them, Because you have said Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, for thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who live in this city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them a sword, famine, pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with a sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will give them over to be a terror to all the kingdoms on the earth, to be a curse and an object of horror and hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have banished them, because they have not listened to my words, declares Yahweh, which I sent to them by my slaves, the prophets. But you will not listen, declares Yahweh. And then to his chosen exiles, to those who he has once again removed from the promised land. He once again tells them of that future and the hope that they are promised. He says, you therefore hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, dear one, there were many who claimed to be of Israel then. And perhaps they were of the nation Israel but not of the true Israel. These people, they liked the promises of God, at least the ones that they thought were the promises. They loved the pageantry of the temple, the festivals, and they loved all the holidays that came with being of that people. But they had no love for the word of God. They refused to obey it. And even though they heard it preached to them over and over and again, they would in fact, they would not, and in fact, could not apply it to their lives. And the same is true today. Even in this post-Christian world in which we live, there are those that claim to be of Christ, who claim to have been regenerated by His Holy Spirit, but who will not hear and will not apply His Word to their lives. This is important, because Jesus said very clearly, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come from myself, but he sent me, John 8, 42. In other words, you can't love Jesus unless God is your father. And you're saying, I love Jesus. I, I know that I do. But he said, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And in Luke 6, 46, we're told the simple truth by Christ. He said to these who, who actually called on him, who were unwilling to obey him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Saints, what Jacob is demonstrating to us is the hallmark of the Christian life. Obedience. 
not perfect obedience, and maybe not even complete obedience all the time. But to those who, whose Father is God, who do love Jesus, they will strive for obedience. They will do as Jacob and the sons of Israel are doing. They will obey and head into exile. Because here is where the abundant life that is promised in the word of God is found. And we are given this chapter, this section of scripture, in order that the life of Christ that has been made manifest in us, in you, is not lost in translation. God never promised you a rose garden. He has promised you and given you something so much better. Life. And he explained what that life looked like. In Luke 6, starting in verse 47, he said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. Here is the picture of a Christian. Someone who is blood-bought, a true Christian. I will show you what he is like. He's like a man who built a house, who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the river burst against that house and it could not be shaken because it had been well built. But the one who heard and does not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of the house was great. What he said here in Luke is the same thing that he said to the exiles that had been sent into Babylon. Those ones that he told them, I have a future and a hope for. The rain will come. The wind will blow, and the river will burst. And when the wind blows, and the river rises, and the rain comes, you are meant to know that the promises of the Lord are yes and amen, as told to us in 2 Corinthians 1.20. And they have not been lost in translation. But our life in Christ, the abundant life now is given to us now in order that we can bring glory to God in it through obedience and faith during suffering, as told to us in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is something our brother Paul understood. Paul was so confident in the truth of God that he could with absolute assurance tell his, these saints, these people in, in, in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, that his suffering was for their good. Paul was a man who understood suffering. But more than that, he understood the promises of the Lord that had been made to him. Which is why after telling the church in Ephesus that his suffering was for their glory, he once again turns his eyes to the reality of the promise of God and to once again proclaims the truth of the gospel of God. Verses 14 through 21 of Ephesians 3, he says, For this reason, this suffering, this is the reason for my, the, my suffering is for your glory. And for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that he would give to you according to the riches of his glory 
to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know, to know, to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or understand according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and to all generations forever. Amen. For us, the life of Jacob may have seemed like it had been sidelined, like maybe he had lost his bearings, lost his footing with the Lord. But the promises of the Lord were never lost in translation for him. In this realm, he had suffered years of pain and loss. First Rebekah and then Joseph. But during this time, he clung to the promises of the Lord as he entered into Egypt. He knew he was never going back to the promised land alive. And yet he had been given the promise and he knew, I will be back. The Lord will bring me back. And he understood that it was never the land. The land was never the thing that Jacob understood as the prize of God. The true promise of God was God. He understood that this world is not our home. And it was not his home any more than it's ours. So dear ones, on this Christmas morning, what do you see as the gift of God is in your life? Is it your salvation? Is it that God hears you when you speak? Or do you look to God expecting houses, money, children, an easy life to be rich and famous? That's a false gospel. God is the prize. God is the promise. And God is our future. And he is our hope. Heaven is not our home. Christ is our home. And in him, we do have life and life more abundantly. Ask Jacob. Let's pray.